This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm well and well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You know, just screwing around with uh, what's going around in the office. How about yourself? What are you up to? <laughs> no, no, I need to ask you, Max, because what, what are you working on? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make an ion thruster right now. But you're seriously actually trying to make an ion thruster? Why would For you do this? For a toy. For a children's toy. <laughs> no, why would you do this? No, no. This is <laughs> so dangerous. Why would you do this? It's so cool. I have to, but that's the challenge. How do you make 10,000 yeah. volts? Yeah. Not accessible to a small child, so that you can make it something move. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Wait. So you're, no. No. Wait. So wait, first off, why didn't you just start with like my first flamethrower or something like that? Because that sounds like it's a lot more like like safer than an ion engine, right? And then like, wow, fair. <laughs> <laughs> and and why would you do what? Why? Why would you do this? Because it sounds cool. <laughs> like, <you know. laughs> What oh, six-year-old doesn't want an, an ion-powered yeah. vehicle of some kind? Yeah, okay, okay. And you're, this is going to go retail for how much? Like, I, 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 sell it I can't. You can't sell it. Like you can't actually do retail stuff in in like the toy space above a hundred dollars. Expect decent volume. Okay. So it actually. But if you want to make an ion thruster for a hundred bucks, I think we could find other things to do with it. <laughs> 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 like propel drones, maybe, or something like that. Or space there are propulsion. Some drones. There are some drones that are doing ion thrusting. I don't I know, think it's for space this propulsion. Is why I know what this is, because like, <laughs> they use it for drones and they're using yes, they they're 3D printing them, huh? They're 3D mm-hmm. printing these ion thrusting engines for the first yeah, for the first time. Uh so yeah. that's uh it's kind of the easiest way to make them. <laughs> Especially, <yeah. laughs> okay, but it's nice to see, like, do, do you want to do the cool sound? Because this is why we like, before the show started, Max was like, like making this really crazy sound. Uh, which All is, right, I'll, I'll, I'll do the sound really quick. And then we got yeah. we well, we to actually right do down. the show. Yes. But I think, I think we, this is, should not, yeah, this should, we should do this. this is Here boring. we go. That's what it sounds like when it's not properly done and i'm just arcing between it <laughs> please don't kill yourself no no please don't i don't oh, be very careful. <laughs> this, is, this is terrible and this is all this is like please don't kill yourself or anyone else and don't put this no, in the market i'm just excited because i got a, a converter that takes five volts and takes it to like ten thousand volts <laughs> where do you buy this where do you buy that? amazon Oh yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. It's it's a taser subcomponent. Okay. Yeah. Meanwhile, I, I lost an SD card. This is my life. You know, and this is like <laughs> I feel boring now. I feel like I have to do something really exciting. Well, let's tomorrow. do something. Let's talk to someone. Let's. Uh, who do we have on the 3D pod today? Okay. So okay. Let's exciting. talk about the 3D pod. <laughs> I actually want to find out more about the Ion Thruster. But okay. Okay. We'll talk. About we have a guest today. And it's Richard Haig, and Richard Haig uh, uh, is well he's done a ton of stuff. He's like he's been um, he was at Luffer a long time ago and doing really really cutting edge stuff like uh, as in like I don't know in the two thousands I think already with the three D printing research and all this other stuff. And then uh, he is also a uh, director at Added Scientific. Uh, that's kind of an AM consultancy that helps you uh, kind of uh, uh, implement technologies, including binder jet and stuff like that. And he is uh, the uh, professor for additive manufacturing and the director for the Center for Additive Manufacturing. 
CFAM at the University of Nottingham and is also a co-founder of Reactive Fusion. And Reactive Fusion, you may remember, is a process uh, to, uh, you know, essentially... Oh, well, we'll talk about it again, just because people didn't go with the other episode. We'll talk about it again, but it's like a new way of creating 3D printed parts. So we'll, we'll talk about them again. So welcome to the show, Richard. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. I think I'd rather listen to the ion thruster as well, actually. Yeah, do, do you want to? <laughs> I mean, if we all want to just learn about the ion thruster, we could just talk about 3D printed ion thrusters. <laughs> <laughs> And then hopefully, hopefully Max won't kill. I don't want to encourage him. This is the thing. It's like I, I don't want to like encourage him because they'll only do more and more. <laughs> There's lots of people trying for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh goodness. Anyway, okay. So, so Richard, first off, you've been doing this additive thing for a long time. Uh, How did you first get into the contact with it? Oh, it's a long time ago. So I, uh, I actually started in 93. Um, so I, I did a PhD in, in the subject. So I, I was working in the oil and gas industry, which was uh, fairly miserable. And then I came across stereo, the stereolithography process uh, really, really early on. And I was lucky enough to get a PhD uh, position at Nottingham uh, at, this, at the time and looking at stere- stereolithography models for investment casting, which then turned into quick cast and the... Uh, mm-hmm that's now commercialized through 3d systems so um so yeah so uh, i was really really fortunate to find additive manufacturing at a very very early stage in, in its development i think you know went through the 90s in terms of um you know the rapid prototyping rapid tooling kind of area and and then as you said went into the 2000s at loughborough in the additive manufacturing so started a lot of early work in the additive manufacturing area yeah, that's cool. I mean, so in the very early days, I mean, I remember the, when I joined the industry, which was much, much later than you did, I was, I was like in 2008 or something, I could read all of the research, right? I could literally read all the papers, right? Uh, which we don't do now. We can't all do too. that now. Uh, <laughs> but we were able to do that back then. But, you know, but what, was, what kind of research was happening in the, in the, the beginning of the 90s? Like, not very much, I would, I would, uh, I would imagine. Oh, that was quite a lot. I mean, a lot of process, uh, a lot of process work, and you kind of knew everybody at that stage. I mean, it was a very, very small community, and you could have a conference with, you know, the thirty or forty people in the world that were working on it, in all in, all in the same area. Um, and so, I mean, a lot, a lot of additive came out of industry actually. So, commercial companies creating um, processes, and then universities picked them up. And so, one of the universities uh-huh. in the UK that picked it up was was Nottingham, um, mm-hmm. and you know. And it, and it was all prototyping at that stage because the material properties were terrible, the resolution was terrible, all of these kind of things. But do you have any additive buddies from way back then? You're still with? Like, did you know those guys? Like, for example, like, uh, yeah, like, yeah, the people you still know, like, yeah, maybe Olaf Deagle or something, or Rich, yeah, or yeah, Phil Reed. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely, all, all, all the way back when. And so it's. Um, yeah, I mean, it's we're all getting older now. I think quite a lot of us uh, of, of the early people are retiring, and so, um, but it's uh, yeah, no, it's it's it was a very very strong community at that stage, and and you know you could rock up to say the Texas conference, and there would be a hundred people there, and that was all of the people in the world doing academic academic research in the in the field, and so and it was it was a lovely thing actually. It was nice to be part of a small community. Okay, okay. Was it, was funding difficult at that phase on the university um, level? Yeah, I guess so. I think you had to kind of convince. I mean, it, it's gone up and down and out, if I guess, but I, and it's gone through various phases. But I think back then you had to, um, you had to really convince people that it was a thing. Nobody, re- nobody really understood it because it was so new. 
Um, I think in the UK, we've always been quite lucky with the funding. Um, and uh, certainly in the EU, uh, there, was a, there was a thing called European ERP, I think it was called, European Action on Rapid Prototyping that happened in the, in the, in the, uh, in the 90s. And there was quite a big um, European activity going on there. So, 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 so funding was available, but not really for manufacturing uh, aspects. It was much more for prototyping and tooling. So that, those are the big things in the, uh, in the early 90s and how you convert these, these prototypes into real useful things, how you can use them for functional prototypes. Oh, but that was really the thrust back then. Was everybody like, oh my God, this is going to be huge. This is going to, we're going to make end use parts. We're going to do all that crazy stuff. Or is it like. No, no, not at all. No. So, so my, my. Um, no talk about washing machines. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my, um, my, um, my, my boss, I guess, Phil Dickens, who's one of the pioneers in the, in the UK and set up the Nottingham group uh, way back when. Uh, he was one of the first people, I think, to really start talking about, you know, rapid manufacturing, as we called it then, back in 1997 or so. And I think everybody thought he was mad, right, that you'd have, like, you know, wall-to-wall factories full of stereolithography machines, and it was, you know, it was just unimaginable that that's, that that's what would happen. But, of course, it's happened very much uh, these days. And I remember, him, you know, putting up a slide, and it was, like, photoshopped with a whole bunch of different, you know, 30 stereolithography machines in one building. Everyone thought that was crazy. Um, um, but no, 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 I think nobody was back then. And even in the 2000s, at the beginning of the 2000s, we were trying, we're, we're, we decided to give up on the rapid prototyping and tooling uh, activity, you know, cause I think it's very important. You, you, you kind of work at the forefront and we started in the additive manufacturing or rapid manufacturing, uh, area. Um, and it was difficult to get traction. I think in the early days, people didn't really believe that it was, uh, that it had potential because of the surface finish, the resolution, the repeatability, all the things that we kind of already talk about today. But, um, but, but, but gradually through, I think through the, uh, through the, through the 2000s, people really began to sit up and take notice. So by the end of the decade, it was really beginning to fly a um, bit, bit, bit under the radar. And it wasn't until obviously 2012 or 2013 that it hit the, uh, hit the highlights in terms of the hype but there was a lot of companies by the end of that decade working on it but not 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 in the early 2000s yeah exactly it was a, and, and a lot of those people also a lot of these companies also didn't make it right at the heliosis and all these there's, there's a whole bunch of them that were like there and then disappeared afterwards as well well um, they did yeah, they disappeared for good reasons right in some respects yeah. heliosis the usefulness of the, of the process i think and so you know i think that the, the, the useful processes in the end stuck around yeah, I totally, totally agree. Agree, and um, and and in the beginning, I mean, I think, I think, so when you transitioned to making end-use parts, what was the first end-use type of parts you guys tried to make? Final parts, I'd say. Oh, you know what? I think it was something uh, for a. Uh, there's a company in the UK called Flymo, which makes uh, electric lawnmowers, and so they they were really interested, you know, to try and get rid of injection molding. They were still injection molding in the UK at that stage, and they're very interested in, you know, trying to replace parts. Then, so they're very interested in could we. Um, additive manufacture uh, bits for their 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 lawnmowers and so and, and then it was automotive parts and what have you so we did loads and loads of work in the early days looking at the and the, and the cost benefit analysis of doing it and the break and uh, the break point for where injection molding uh, was um, not so cost effective and so so a lot of the early, a lot of the early days and I think you had Chris Tuck on here a few few weeks back and he was he was the, the one of the first guys looking at you know the management and the organization the implementation the cost benefits uh, of, uh, of of additive and, and so you had to do that kind of work and kind of pump prime the area i think in the early days and you really had to work on 
things like material properties because nobody believed that the materials would survive. And so we did loads and loads of work on environmental testing of, of, of materials just to, to show that they had, they had useful properties over a period of time. Was, what was the material that you guys were primarily working with at that point? Was it was it ABS or? So in terms of the materials we were using back then, so I mean they were predominantly based on uh, on the nylons, you know, laser sintry nylons, and and the stereolithography resins. And it was you know you know as, as we've discussed, I think it's um, really quite surprising that the stereolithography process has, has stayed around. It's a, it's a, it's an incredible process that is developing and. Uh, and, and and is you know is is a, is a massive um, technology even now. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting that that it's still got so much. And, and do you think? But if we use in in you know at the moment it's still a thermoset kind of technology, right? So if we move into end use parts, do you think it still has a place, or or should it only be used like uh, you know for molds or things that? Or do you really think it, it has a, a you know a place also in like end use parts as well? No, I think it does have uh, place in end use parts. I mean, you have, um, you know, some companies, you know, like Carbon, for example, they've got like, their, their dual cure uh, technologies, which produces very nice, uh, very nice properties uh, in the end. Um, I mean, I think what for me that every single technology has its challenges. Right? And that, there's no one perfect technology. But no, I absolutely think that uh, that the, the stereolithography and UV based technologies perhaps helped by some kind of thermal cure or uh, heating process to uh, to get things off will 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 be part of the part of the future um, they they the stereolithography process still gives an amazing resolution in in the in, in the parts that it uh, produces and so it's um, yeah I think very much technology for the future. Yeah, I think it's cool. We're seeing a lot of that. We we talked to people from Quantica, for example, on the podcast as well about like these more viscous kind of systems and stuff like that. And we also talked to you know we also saw that Align Technology bought Cubicure. They're doing like a hot lithography type of process as well. So I think for me that really points to people wanting to make more viscous, more uh, tougher, and also safer resins, which I think is is uh, you know that makes me very happy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we've gone from a situation in the in the early nineties where the you know effectively the stereolithography resins were carcinogenic, right? You didn't want to touch them with your hands at all, right? They were they were fairly nasty things to a stage where you're not that far away from having a lineus that you can put in your mouth, and so that's that's quite some development, I think. Yeah, I think, and that would also, to me, that points to technology also becoming, you know, more usable because, yeah, the one point with these methacrylates and all these other material systems and also the other stuff before, yeah, it was just really nasty. Also, but like not only the carcinogenic stuff, but also just handling it normally was terrible and and, and, yeah, and the skin contact allergies people developed. Oh, ice from alcohol, that whole fun thing. <laughs> yeah, no, but but well, that that was even. That's not. I've never worried about that. I've always worried about the the, the skin contact stuff over time. You know that you. Would, no, like, that you yeah, would, that's a fair one because that's actually potentially yeah. dangerous. Yeah. yeah, you never think you're going to get cancer anyway, right? That's why people still smoke. <laughs> I think. Um, but 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 but, the one, but but somehow a really horrible skin allergy would you know does worry me. I don't know. Uh, but but and then and from SLA, do you think uh, you know this this quick cast kind of this this casting from SLA thing? Yeah, that surprisingly also has uh, endured, right? And and that's one of these applications where where you know people also didn't think that that was going to be a, a, a huge thing, and then you still that's still from some of your very first work, right? Yeah, well, no, I, I, I think it's, that's going to always have legs because you can make very large parts with it, and so you can make very accurate patterns, and then you can make very large metal parts from it you know, through through a conventional casting process. And so I think 
you know, there's millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars of parts that are cast off quick cast and, and other rapid prototyping patterns every single year. So it's a big business, like m- many more than our laser powder diffusion. Yeah, I think yeah, there's a lot of intricate designs, a lot of stuff you could be doing. And then, and so, what time did you start to like? You know, when did you start working on powder fusion and these other processes, or why actually? Did you think that it was just a you know just curious or? Oh, I, well, I think, well, I mean, it goes with funding, doesn't it? But I think, it, as I say, in the in the in the nineties, we had a stereolithography machine. That's the machine we had in the lab, and so that's the work that we did. Uh, we were lucky enough to get some more funding and get some industry support to have a the, the powder bed fusion stuff in the. Um, in the the two thousands, after that in the twenty tens, we made a very strategic decision to move to um, multi material, multi functional additive manufacturing, and that's when we got involved with the jetting uh, side of things and the power, the binders and jetting uh, side of things. And so, um, and that was a very deliberate decision to then to then move forward. So I think you can characterise us in the in the in the nineties stereolithography, probably in the two thousands laser powder bed fusion and powder bed activity and in the in the you know since then we've been very ink jet and uh and stereotypical based as well and and so talking about this like the powder bit fusion stuff like i mean you know it's a wonderful technology for the service bureau and surgical guides and stuff like that are you surprised at how long it's taken for stuff to get improved in powder bed fusion, how long it's taken for stuff to get like a lot faster or a lot more colorful or a lot more functional? Not really, personally, because I think it's a thermal-based process, isn't it? And so it's it's very difficult to control thermal-based processes. And so it's, yeah, it's, it, it's very, personally, I'm not surprised. Obviously, you've got powders and then you've got surface finish effects that you come with the, with the powder. So I'm, I'm not completely surprised it's taken so long. I think that the, the results you get out of these, uh, you know, powder bed processes these days are actually actually pretty good and very comparable with um you know a lot, a lot of technologies especially if you use finishing techniques there's lots of really good finishing techniques out there out there now uh, for, for, for polymer parts and obviously also metal parts so yeah i yeah i'm not i'm not wholly surprised if i'm honest but um but, but i think they are beginning to uh, take hold and I think that they've got their niche and I think that they they are emerged technologies now I don't think they're emerging at all yeah I think I think yeah it's, it's interesting as well and you yourself like you know do you think that the, the, that's the technology for for mainstream manufacturing as well do you see like you know because a lot of people seem to think that like for example like a powder fusion system is going to be used to make lots and lots of car parts and do you see stuff like that happen is that something that you because uh, that you're still optimistic about well uh i mean you, you've got lots of issues haven't you with with a single well not obviously sometimes multiple lasers these days but you've got you've got some challenges with not not very many lasers doing doing all of the work and so the the speed that you can do things it, it's challenging. So additive has always been really fantastic for small and complicated, um, and you know less good for large and, uh, and, and and not so complicated. So there's there's always a sweet spot sweet spot for the technologies. I think technologies like the the, the, the metal binder jets uh, systems on there fill a niche as well. Right. So you don't you don't get quite the metallurgy out of them. I think that you do out of the laser powder bed fusion, um, but they're also you know going to be useful for and better for scale i mean one of the interest one of the reasons we're interested in jetting technologies or jetting based activities is that they're inherently scalable and 
And so I think that that, for me, that's why the the, the jetting based activity have some have some links. Okay, so talk to us a bit about that scalability. Because okay, why? Because we can build lots and lots of nozzles, or what makes these things like inherently scalable? And what makes the other ones not inherently scalable? The laser based technology, you've obviously got to to get the laser on the powder bed, and you want to make it as, as perpendicular to the powder bed as possible, and that limits the size of the powder bed that you can have, and the material you know the material handling issues uh, there as well. Whereas an inkjet head, you can effectively bank them up. You can get you know very you know um, Several inkjet heads in 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 parallel or in series, and you can basically cover more area uh, at one time rather than relying on a single spot. And this is why I think things like um, the fused filament or FDM kind of technologies are they're they're great and they've really come on a long, an awful long way. Um, but I think they're going to be limited for mass for mass manufacturing because you're kind of using a single point. Okay, okay. And then, but then, okay, you could stagger the nozzles, right? You could put one nozzle in one layer and one nozzle making the second layer right immediately after, all that kind of, you could, you know, you could kind of serially do that. You could, but there's going to be a limit to the amount of nozzles you can have mm-hmm. on, a, on, a, on a kind of an FDM system. And, and the, the control and complexity of that system, I think, would be there. I think ideally mm-hmm. uh, approaches that you can do the whole layer in one go, in one go like the DLP processes for stereolithography or the, you know, the, the the multi-jet fusion kind of approach where you're, you're kind of sintering the, the the whole layer in one go that in that in that case we're enabled by by an inkjet based system i think that, that that is that is the thing that's going to enable the scalability of, of the processes um where it's needed for mass manufacture sometimes you don't need it i think for small for small complicated parts um like you know the hearing aids stereolithography processes with the you know single laser are fine um but the um, but for, for larger parts and, uh, and and faster manufacture, then I think you need to have uh, more area-based um, processing rather than single point. Okay, and on top of that, of course, we, we can process a lot more different things. We could process conductive traces. We could do things that don't conduct. We could uh, print, I don't know, pretty much batteries, whatever. And, 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 you know, this whole, like, you know, so it becomes really kind of then kind of very tempting to think about this like wait a minute we can just serialize this we have a whole bunch of different nozzles printing different or the same nozzles printing different different types of materials and we can make the whole radio we can print it all in one go right <laughs> it's a nice yeah it's a nice idea I mean, to be to be honest that's that's really the thrust of our our, our main research now at, at, at cfam is that is looking at multi-material multifunctional additive manufacturing and you're exactly right you know you can use the uh, the inkjet based systems to deposit different materials like a color printer you can do different functional materials so uh, so for me if you like the, the future of additive is really in the in, in the deposition of multiple and functional materials and that's that's where you're going to see the real benefit of it and and if you see that you know, design is really the main reason you want to do additive so you want to there's no point in for me in making something and that you can make conventionally and uh, so design is the main thing but that functionality is another uh, another axis on that, uh, uh, another axis of, uh, of the design freedom that we have, and so you're absolutely right. Yeah, printing conductive tracks or pharmaceuticals or biology, even what have you, um, that's that's the way to do it. There are limitations though with jetting, right? So it's not easy to to inkjet every single material, and some some materials are impossible to inkjet, right? Um, and so um, it's it's as I said before, it's not a you can't use one technology for everything to just print out your phone or print out your radio or print out um, all the things you need. You have to really think about 
you know, the different materials that you need to get out of those nozzles. So that, yeah. that, and then this is a multi-head solution, right? Where you're using a binder jetting head and a FDM head and a whatever head to, to make one section or one piece of it. And then you think move on and then you lay down the traces and then cover the traces just using different technology in the same machine, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can get hybrid systems for sure. And there's, you know, you can get more, I kind of, I kind of get direct ink writing systems for doing the, you know, the thicker, the thicker parts. You can absolutely do that or high viscosity heads. So we, we've, we've produced um, hybrid systems here where you've got like Nordson high viscosity print heads coupled with uh, piezoelectric print heads. And you can absolutely combine those two things together um, to, to, to create the part. So, yep. Okay, and then and then the interesting thing, of course, there is that that you know that that has okay. Yes, there's limited chemistry, right? So you need to have stuff that has the right skull seal that. But within that, that, there seems to be a lot of flexibility. Also, you know, the types of items you could be producing is also the the, the variation is much much higher uh, than we currently can with, like, for example, an SLS machine, like a powder diffusion machine. You know, that could really, really make us so much more versatile in what we could produce and what we could produce when and also what, what we could do to coat things and all that kind of thing, right? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, so, um, and so you know, we, we here uh, at the university and also within the, the companies to a certain extent have a bit of a focus on functional printing. So one of my colleagues, Ricky Wildman, is, is, is working on printing of pharmaceutical um, devices and uh, oral dosage forms, and um, and also you know working with other colleagues to to look at printing biological uh, structures. So uh, and and within more within the group here, we're we're looking to print more ele electromagnetic, electronic based uh, structures. So you're absolutely right. That combination of the ability to put different materials down enables you to to create things that you just can't do before. So I think that's, that's really, really very exciting. I think, and also you mentioned, by the way, this is actually kind of really weird that we haven't brought this up, but, uh, but, but, but you mentioned area-based or a wider area printing, and that's also going on, of course, in the, the powder bed world. And of course, it also happened with like high-speed sintering and stuff like that. Do you want to tell us about the, the high-speed sintering journey? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the high-speed sintering was developed by a colleague of mine at the time, uh, Neil Hopkinson. Uh, so um, basically what, Basically, what happens uh, in the UK is we were at, we were at Nottingham, we moved to Loughborough, and then we moved back to Nottingham, and Neil Neil then went to Sheffield, right, uh, University. But but Neil developed the the high speed sintering process, which is effectively developed into um, the the SAF process at Stratasys, the HS uh, the the multi jet fusion process at um, uh, at um, at HP, as well as some Vauxhall based Vauxhall jet uh, Vauxhall jet uh, Vauxhall jet um systems as well and 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 neil neil um identified very early on this this need to move to area-based um processing to speed things up and that was done on the background of the work that we've done as a group looking at the cost of laser sintering and making it try trying to make it cost uh, effective against uh, injection molding it was really clear that you just needed to speed the processes up and one one and his method of speeding the process up was to come up with this um, this high-speed sintering, which is um, basically using very similar nylon-based powders from a laser sintering machine uh, system, and then ink jetting in a, a radiation absorbent material, and then flashing that. Right, and um, so Stratasys uses piezoelectric print heads. I think HP used um, uh, you know, thermal-based uh, ink heads, but it's basically similar. Uh, and so the radiation absorbent material then then absorbs absorbs the heat and fuses the materials together. And does it does it layer by layer? 
Yeah, I, th- I thought that was really, really exciting. And was that like for you guys to kind of be there? Because I, I just noticed that after that, like all of you guys started, I don't know if that was the first time, but all you guys started inventing your own technologies. Was that, <laughs> or was that just a coincidence? Um, no, I, I, I think we're, I mean, we're lucky enough to be on the cusp of, uh, on the, the forefront of thing of a lot of things. So, um, I mean, Neil, Neil did a fantastic job with that and he's, he, he's brought it to market and, uh, you know, I think he's done a really, really, really great thing. We're very much interested in taking our work out from the lab um, and and industrializing it and and taking it forward. And there's many many other things actually that we I think we could have taken out that we didn't that we didn't do. Um, and we because very often honestly, if you're if you're researching the same thing for years, you get a bit bored with it and you want to do the next thing, right? And so if you if you're a keen researcher, you want to carry on and fiddle and play and uh, and do new things and so there's very many things that we did i think in the early 2000s that other people have commercialized and taken forward and um and and, and, and done very well out of it and, that, and i think that's fantastic but um but no we're, we're always very keen on having that industrialization of the activity that we're doing especially now in this functional material and uh, and getting more engineering grade materials i think one of the problems with Things like laser sintering, for example, or or the nylon based, they're all nylon based, right? And so with a very limited palette of materials you get for uh, the polymer laser uh, based processes or the inkjet based processes. Um, In the metals, you get much, much greater variety of materials. And so one of the things that we've been concentrating on uh, in the last few years is getting better, more engineering grade materials that people can use. I just I just noticed something that I have no idea why why nylon I know we're stuck to nylon but why is it always nylon why why is that always a polyamide uh, uh, eleven twelve whatever that, that we end up making yeah, stuff what for? about its chemical properties is making it so attractive yeah it was a really lucky find I think so it must have been Joe Beeman I guess down but down down at down at Texas but it was a really lucky find I'm not sure whether this is true or not but I think it's you know it was originally a byproduct or a or a paint filler or something like that of, of another product. It's in it's in spray uh it's like a what is it called like sp- like spray paint down. Yeah exactly so it's it's it's, it's kind of a, it's a filler for, filler for those kind of things but it just happens to have the characteristics post melt that it flows very well so it's semi crystalline and it and it and it flows really well after so the laser isn't doing much of the work the, the the heat of the chamber is doing most of the work and the laser is just kind of tipping it over the edge and the characteristic of this nylon 12 is that it flows a lot after it's melted and then and then and then you know solidifies pretty quickly and so you you can then fill up gaps and so it's a re, it's an almost perfect uh, it's almost a wax really in many respects it's very close to being fairly fairly waxy really um and uh, and so yeah it's 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 just the, the the perfect material to to get things going, especially on a prototyping uh, level that it was that it was brought into, and it's become pretty robust for many manufacturing parts as well. But that's the history. Yeah. It's basically that. Yeah, it's crazy. It was a lucky. Also, it was a lucky find. So. Yeah, but it's also it's really funny because it's in a, a paint. It's in that paint for exactly the same reason, right? It's also it's an additive in which we all found out when the Evonik fire happened. Everybody. There was no, no more polyamide powder, and everybody went scrambling around the world to try to find more of the stuff. And it was also, it's also, it's also in lipstick <laughs> for exactly the same reasons. Uh, that it's like that flowability and that feeling of lipstick, like the, the the feeling of lipstick. Let's say that kind of, it's just the same kind of feeling that you get, that jeans-like feeling that you get if you touch a, a powder perfusion object because it's it's the same stuff. 
it's very smooth, right? And that's right. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's the same flowability, that smoothness of lipstick. They like that characteristic. And that's why they use it as a lipstick filler as well. The same material, like literally the same stuff. I, I managed to get it to print. <laughs> but um, so, so that was in the, 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 it was in 2012 or something when the, there was a big fire at Evonik and all of a sudden the world ran out of polyamide, right? And nobody had ever thought that you could run out of polyamide, right? Because it was like, what do you mean? This is like super abundant. What and then, so everybody was going crazy because nobody, you had just a bunch of guys who told them to go home. Your machines couldn't do anything. You didn't have this magical powder stuff. And then we found out that time it was really difficult to create because you had to cryo grind it and no one knew how to do that properly. It was, it was horrible. And I spent, I spent like a good part and I nearly went bankrupt on that as well because I, I, try to make another material and then I uh, tried to make it and it didn't work. Oh God, it was horrible. <laughs> well, that, 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 what, you're, what you're describing there, because we did a load of that as well. What you're describing mm -hmm. there is exactly the problem with the polymer <laughs> processes is that there's a really limited palette of, uh, of materials available. And the only way to get them in the, in the right, you know, particle size distribution and the right morphology and shape is at the polymerization stage. There's very few that, that do that. And so if you cryo grind them, you, a have horrific powders in terms of shape and size. You have to throw away mm -hmm. buckets of it, um, but you also kind of destroy the properties in the cryo grinding process, and so you don't get the, be the better properties out of it. So it's yeah, it, it's it's difficult to get the polymers in the right particle size distribution. That's it. That's the yeah. no, sir. There's like there's like literally like one company that does most of grinding. It's a dresser group or something. They do nearly all the grinding for nearly everybody because they know how to do this and. It's ridiculously impossible to do this. <laughs> no, it's crazy. Anyway, but, and um, okay, so 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 it's like um, glitter. And, yeah. <laughs> so 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 so. Uh, but uh, tell us a little bit about your own journey. But I, I think I think your own journey first to reactive fusion. I mean, okay, there's one thing to say, hey, yeah, well, it's cool to do stuff outside the lab, but it's quite a leap to actually like actually take it into making an actual technology, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, I mean, I think the, the reactive fusion stuff came out of a, a conversation that Chris and I had on a, on a train in, in, in Holland, I think. You know, we were just chewing things over and we thought, hey, you know, why can't we, because uh, we were doing, we were doing some work on reactive jetting at that point, which is basically, so I was describing the challenges with ink jetting before. Um, and so one of the ways of overcoming that, so you can't inkjet many polymers. It's very, it's, it's, their, their viscosity is too high. Their melt point is too high. Um, and, but very often the, the ingredients of those, the monomers, uh, of the, of the, um, polymers are jettable. And so for a long time at the university, we've been doing, and, and actually now within Avid Scientific, um, we, we've been doing reactive jetting. Um, so you jet the basically the ingredients to form the polymer in situ, and that's going very well for things like polyurethane and uh, silicone. We've done some work on, on polycarbonate as well. And say so on this train, we, me and Chris were talking it through, and we thought, well, okay, well, can't you do this in a powder bed to speed things up? You know, because you bulk it up with a powder and, and inkjet it, and it can act as a support and what have you. And so we came up with this concept of having a, a reactive powder as well, so not just jetting into a, into a, an inert nylon but actually jetting into uh, into a reactive powder so that's where the reactive fusion came from so they got a patent um so it's basically basically reactive jetting of two two-part materials into a reactive powder bed and then we've been really fortunate to get a grant to set up a company out of that so uh, the innovate uk in the uk has uh, given us a, a small grant to set up the company and that's that's what we're taking forward
And where, where do you see the like like is like we, okay we talked first off we talked we talked about this kind of already but the Chris Tuck episode of 152 uh, for people who are interested in learning more about also that, that reactive fusion stuff but you know so far in the status of the company like it's nice to say you have a new technology but now you're in a time when people are not too into new things anymore everybody's a lot more conservative now than a couple of years ago is it difficult for you guys to find traction to really get people to to say oh wow we do actually want to take this into production. No, I don't think so. I think people are, people are really keen to get engineering grade material, uh, engineering grade polymers out of uh, additive manufacturing systems. We we talked earlier about the, the challenges with stereolithography resins and their, you know, their their UV uh, curability and the challenges you get there. We talked about the challenges of nylon. Effectively, what reactive jetting and reactive fusion does is is overcome that and enables you to get much higher molecular weight. Uh, polymers straight out of the system. So actually, we get we're, we're getting quite a lot of interest in it. Actually, um, and I've, you know, it's it's complicated to do. It's like any of the additive. It sounds really simple, um, you know, just layering things up and building the part. But getting getting the individual droplets to mix, getting them to to, to cure and to not warp and to properly bind with the powders. You know, got to do it in a controlled atmosphere and all of these kind of things. It's 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 complicated. So, um, but that that's why you know. Both here at the university and also within Added Scientific and actually now Reactive Fusion, they're kind of research-based company that are able to take this forward. Okay, you said polycarbonate, right? That's so that's that, that's something really very exciting. I think that, that that's a material where I think there's a lot of uses and a lot of uses very adjacent to what we're good at. This what you said, small complicated things or small, uh, you know, uh, unique things. I'd say. So t- tell us a little bit more about that. Do you see like, or, or do you see that there's that? Because at first it was like when we talked to Ricky, it was like this, it was all about the polyurethane. Now you're seeing more chemistry, right? Yeah, I'm, I, th- I think our, our main chemistries are polyurethane and polyureas as well as silicones. And so, so that, you know, I think there are no pure silicones out, out there that are additively produced. They're all UV-cured silicones. And so we're, we've got some nice te- technology and nice nice recipes for for doing reactive jetting of silicones. The polycarbonate, it, it, it's a bit of a story. We did a PhD on it. So although we were successfully able to do it, we did destroy a few printheads, all right? And so the the, 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 the base materials were fairly aggressive with the printheads. Um, and okay. so that's not something well, we're taking forward particularly successfully at the moment. But I, it, I'm it, curious, it, sorry, when you say you destroyed the printhead, was it the extrusion of the of the PC that was no, hurting just, them? Just, the just, heat or just the whole damn thing? Just the <laughs> dissolve the dissolving of the of the printhead. <laughs> the printheads with the uh, with, with the, the various chemicals that we were jetting. So ah. uh, it, it <laughs> might well be the particular printhead that we were using. Um, but it becomes expensive, and this is why injetting is quite a challenging thing. They are expensive things. You know, industrial printheads are several thousand pounds, um, and so you need to know that you're going to get it right um, um, before you destroy a bunch of thousand, you know, several thousand pounds worth of printheads. All right. So having a low cost um, entry level system for playing um, uh, with, with inkjet research is, is quite important. That again, that's something that we've developed here at the university, um, and and. And commercializing throughout it to do easy research into into inkjet based research so you don't um waste thousands of pounds yeah totally. and i think so silicon is super exciting i think i think pure silicon would be amazing i mean like from ski masks to all this medical stuff to those million aligners a day to uh you know tons of like, uh, medical adjacent stuff as well headphones whatever like uh, wow that would be 
completely amazing, yeah. right? No, absolutely. So I mean, that, that, that's a, that's a key area for us. We're we're pushing very hard to work on that. Um, and but if you think about it, you can also combine, you know, a, a stiff PU and a softer and a softer uh, or a stiffer PU and a softer silicone and same build effectively because you can inject the different different materials. You just need to have have more printhead. So that ability to combine um, multi materials in a single part is again something that you, you get the benefit from the inject based te- technologies. I think. Yeah, exactly. you can make more, much more complex things like the, you know, the, you know, the whole shoe sole and saying. Yeah. But, uh, but I do think that business-wise, I mean, okay, the shoe thing, okay, if if that's going to work, I still don't know if that's going to work, but it's still, maybe it'll work. A lot of people need shoes. There's eight billion of us. That's like about sixteen pair, billion pairs of shoes. Hey, that's not bad, right? Um, but 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 on the same time, like the silicone excites me much more because I just know that there, I have, I could, you know, if you could do that tomorrow, I will have customers for you like tomorrow. Like literally, I'd buy one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would totally buy one. I, <laughs> I, I would say it's watch this. Cool All right, so and so, yeah, right. yeah, we you know, we it's very it's very much a, 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 an active area of uh, research that we've been doing in the university, also within uh, uh, this particular activity going on at Scientific as well. Um, and so it's yeah, it's very very exciting and because of exactly the reasons that you say that there's a real need for engineering grade pure silicone in in multiple industrial sectors so it's a, it, it, it's a, it's hopefully a very exciting area and then the other one the one i don't understand your enthusiasm for is just you mentioned this twice already the polyurea what is that even i have no idea what that is and what we can do with it it's kind of a version of um of, of polyurethane so i'm not i'm not a chemist so i'm not going to go into the, 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 the chemistry on it but it's uh it's it's similar chemistry to, to, to polyurethane so. Okay, okay. Uh, you're talking to somebody that's like from an industry where we say ABS like for something that has nothing to do with, ever with ABS. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a po- it's it's a po- it's a resin, but it's ABS like. <laughs> I tried to explain to LinkedIn. This one guy like, no, no, we use TPE and TPU just interchangeably. It's okay. <laughs> that's just us. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, again, that's the problem of, of of you know back in the '90s, people would say it's ABS like materials or it's you know PC like materials. Yeah. And in the end, we have to develop our own materials that are uh, that are specific to, to the processes, rather than try to mimic everything else or jet the real material. So that's the or, or process the real material. I think. Yeah, I, I remember. I was like, this is like a really long time ago, over ten years ago. I was at Droog Design, which is like a, a Dutch design studio, and we were showing them this this the X1 parts that we'd made into like a door handles and stuff like this. And we were like, hey, you can make this into a door handle. Maybe you could design door handle. Hint, hint, right? And uh, the design was really, really uber hip. And, 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 then, and then I was ready to go into my whole spiel about saying like, okay, this X1, um, you know, the, the, it looks a bit artisanal, looks very different than milled and all this. And I was trying to kind of make excuses. And then the guy from Droog was like, no, no, I really like this. It's, it's, it looks really cool. <laughs> and we'd never really thought about it that way. <laughs> it really, sounds really stupid, right? <laughs> we never really thought about, but what do you mean? And then he was like, he liked the aesthetic of the material, right? Of the, and he just thought that, that it had something kind of like, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of like artisanal looking that he, he really enjoyed that. And, and he thought, oh, that's maybe something we can do something with, you know? And yeah, we never see the positive side of this stuff. We're always used to like, there's these stair steps and it's not, you know, it, uh, there's these layers and we, we always make excuses, you know? I, I, I think increasingly people are accepting the, the finish that you get with, it, with these parts. And it's the same with, uh, if you think about it, topology optimization. When we, we started topology optimization work 
you know, back in the early 2000s, right, looking at that combination of topology optimization and additive manufacturing and lightweighting structures and everything. And back then, everyone thought they looked weird, all right, these crazy structures that you're never, ever going to have. They're not like, they're not structures that engineers know and love. And so, you know, people were very unaccepting of that kind of design. Whereas now, I think topology optimization is very widely accepted as, as 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 a really nice neat engineering solution for for many products so i think o- over time people get used to it and it's when the the older engineers retire and the newer engineers that are seen at universities come through and they see it and uh, see that it's a possible to, possibility to implement this stuff yeah, yeah i think that's a good point i mean i think we had this but then it goes like then everybody starts copying it for copying its sake right because at one point we had this time when everything looks like this like it was made by this HR Geiger guy that made the aliens, you know? Yeah. Then there was this Voronoi period where everything was like, we yeah. used a Voronoi. And <laughs> I was like, what is this Voronoi? Why does everybody have to make it like a Voronoi? Yeah. Then there was the bio-inspired period where everybody was taking like the same, like, you know, we said the word hello and that became the shape of the couch. And then because everything <laughs> was like a waveform, it all looked alike. I was like, oh, guys, <laughs> I don't think we're doing this correctly. And then, and then, and now we're in the lattice age, right? So where okay. everything is like lattices. Oh, I feel like we're exiting the lattice. We're on and we're so. moving into the next one. But yeah. <laughs> I was saying, so you, you've missed out the TPMS structures in it. Right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, oh, yeah. goodness, yeah. You're, you're, you're asking, I mean, they are fantastic. You, you have they, they have to be used in the right context. So, um, I'm in a way much less excited by shape these days, right? and, and I'm much more excited by function. So get, getting the functionality of the system. And if you can use Varro and I, or, or if you can use TPM, TPMS structures or left structures to get, um, and then combine it with multiple materials to get the function that you need, you know, can you design a, you know, say a battery with, you know, much greater surface area because you, you're using a particular triple periodic mi- uh, mineral structure kind of lattice, then fantastic. That's got a real use, right? Um, but just doing it for the sake of doing it, I, uh, I'm also over. I would say. Yeah, I think we need to get over ourselves in that sense. I totally agree with you because, like, we were just always like, it, there was also this period where it was like, it's 3D printed, but it's just a pen, right? Yeah, but it's 3D printed. It's a 3D printed pen. And you could just see other people. And you were like, oh, you muggle. You just don't understand the magic, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, and the, and the guy was just like, but it's a really expensive pen. Why? Why? You know? <laughs> and we need to get out of that. I agree with you. Because it's beautiful. It was made by a robot. That's what makes it beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I was having a chat with Yannick Katan and a few uh, few months back and i think he was you know he was the guy that started freedom of creation all these funky structures and i think he's much more swinging back to the simplicity kind of kind of way of designing things now and it's you know you can overcomplicate uh, the design of some structures i think yeah totally agree anyway so hey richard it was great having you on thank you so much for 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 coming here no oh, fantastic really really enjoyed it thanks very much indeed and uh, Max, thanks for being here. Please don't kill yourself with your ion engine in the interim. <laughs> Be around for the next pod, please. And zap, please do zap. not put that on the market as a child's toy. I'll find a way. It was fascinating, Joris. Thanks for being Thank you. I really, I, I, now I appreciate it. You always say the same thing. You say, oh, it's, it's fascinating. And I always like think, really, is it fascinating, Max? It is. And now I know what you do normally while we're not doing this. <laughs> So I feel a lot better now. Like, wow, no, this must be really good. You must really this. like this. I do. <laughs> Super tech fun. <laughs> if, if, we, if we know what he does in a downtime when he's not doing the three D pod, now I'm like, oh, thanks for the fascinating Max. That's great. <laughs> All right, and thank you for listening. This is another episode of the three D pod, and you have a great day. 
You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.